Hello there, and welcome back to another episode of the Learning Science Podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Harrison. And for this episode, we're kicking it old school, as they say. You know, I I, I never had a, a bell at my high school, but I've seen so many TV shows and movies that have that exact sound effect in them that I I understand in my bones that I'm supposed to pay attention when I hear that. Um, it's sort of baked into this this like universal consciousness that we all have, I think, about what it means to be a high school student. I would have expected that pretty much every single American high school would have had a bell. Like I had a bell in high school, I had one in middle school, and every single time I heard it, it was like either you have to leave class and start heading to your next class or it meant that your next class started. How did your school function basically without a bell? Because for us, it was a way to make sure everyone was where they were supposed to be on time. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know. It I, That makes sense that it would be that way. And I, I never really thought too hard about the fact that we didn't have one. There's just a, a trust that students are gonna students are gonna make it to make it to their 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 classroom on time, and if they don't, right, the sort of natural consequence is, well, you're you're not in class, right? You you you, you didn't make it. <laughs> it's a it's a a dog eat dog world right, out I, there. I think it's a very interesting point because now that I think of it, you know, in college we don't have a bell, and right. I just kind of realized that that was a thing, which makes me wonder: Do you think the bell represents something more, like something about treating school? as not a place of learning, but a place to force people to, I'm not sure what's the best way of phrasing this, but I guess it's not really a place where you're lucky to be, but kind of a place where you're forced to be. Yeah, I'm sure that there's something to that. You know, a, a lot of the the way that I think we tend to conceptualize the idea of, of the classroom or school um, probably comes from popular culture and media and like the movies that we see about, you know, high school students and, and the kind of feelings that they have, you know, it's, it's either, it seems to me like, um, there's the mean girls version of what high school is where it's this, you know, cutthroat kind of social game that you have to play. And there are people who are miserable and people who are, you know, kind of top dog and, um, uh, uh, all those kind of fun dynamics that, that play out. And then there's the, you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off or, or, or Breakfast Club version where it's like, you know, the students are here to, to sit and learn and the teachers give the information and everyone's kind of miserable. And That's um, a really good point that you bring up. And I think when we're talking about the classroom experience, which is going to be the main topic of discussion for this episode, I think the classroom experience is something that, you know, a lot of students may or may not take for granted just because of the way that it's presented in uh, popular culture. Totally. And, and there's, there's this idea that so much of the information that's taught, like students kind of accept that it's information they're probably never going to use, that mm-hmm. they just have to kind of know it. Yeah. Um, the, the most concrete, like boiled down version of that that I've seen is that whole meme about mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. The mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. The mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. The mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. This is a phrase that I think everybody who has been in a life science or biology class or something, you know, kind of knows as the truth. But really, like, how useful is that knowledge to, to somebody who isn't a, a biologist or a doctor or someone who works directly with, with mitochondria? 
Um, right. So like I talked about before, right? It's, it's this like group, this kind of social communal unconscious that we all have these ideas that, that are, that are sort of baked in, into our, into our subconscious that, um, that are so connected to school because of how universal that experience is. But, you know, even though we tend to think of the classroom experience as a relatively ubiquitous one, there's so many clashing factors, subtle differences and nuances to the process of learning in the classroom. Right. Um, It's very important to address that high school graduation rates in the United States vary a lot, depending on things like socioeconomic status, geographical location, whether you went to a public or private school, and also so many personal factors, like how well you got along with your classmates and teachers, whether you had to work a part-time job in addition to school, what kind of extracurricular activities you had access to. The list goes on and on. Right. And historically, there are even traceable differences in how subject material, especially in science, was taught in the classroom over time. So historians of science education tend to agree that there were two major shifts that have occurred in the American tradition of science learning in the classroom over the past few centuries. Right. So the first shift that we're talking about happened over the course of a few decades from around 1880 to 1920, depending on who you ask. Um, This is when critics of the lecture demonstration model of science learning became particularly passionate about reforming science education into um, the laboratory model. So just to be clear, that isn't to say that science lectures were completely done away with or that they're even frowned upon in academic circles. It's just that the idea of just simply presenting information to really passive students and hoping that they would memorize facts and recite them back the next day, it was really examined in a very critical way on a large scale. That's right. And, and you know, as we'll hear from our interviewee in, uh, in just a couple minutes, a um, hundred years later today, right, this is still a matter of ongoing debate among science teaching communities. The second shift that we mentioned is actually a more recent one that some educational theorists think is still ongoing. And this one just involves the acknowledgement that different students have different learning styles. So some students like to learn visually, some auditorially, some kinesthetically. And the principal idea that each student learns a slightly different way has become a more common topic of discussion. Yeah. So so today, in 2020, not only are we aware of of differences in educational experience between different uh, uh, different groups, socioeconomic groups, racial groups, geographic groups, uh, uh, religion, we know that even on the individual level, no two students learn science or really anything in the exact same way. So so the big question for this episode is how do we reconcile this? enormous variety with all of that homogeneity we were talking about earlier. From what we found, a lot of the universality that we think of is linked to the concept of standardized testing. There's all kinds of of standardized tests out there. And I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you have probably taken some form of a standardized test. Uh, which just, you know, by definition, it means that, that, that it's, it's standardized. So everybody has to learn the same material. Everybody is, you know, in an ideal world, it's like an equal playing field for everyone. Of course, in practice, it doesn't work out that way. And we can, we can, we can talk about all of those differences. One of the most common standardized tests that, that people take um, are the AP exams. Uh, right. Now, these are, if you're not familiar with, with AP tests, I think there are 
probably a couple dozen different AP tests at this yeah. point in different subjects from chemistry to macroeconomics to music theory to, you know, a number of foreign languages and history and, and things like that. Um, and it's each exam is scored on a, on a scale from one to five. And uh, whatever score you get on that test, you know, some colleges will, will take that as college credit. And this program has been around since the 1950s, since uh, 1956. And it's grown an incredible amount. Um, So just looking at some of these numbers, the number of participating high schools, it started off as just 104, and now it's almost 23,000 high schools. In in the 1950s, a little over 1,000 American students took AP exams, and then last year, uh, almost 3 million took them. Wow. So, you know, I, I, with these numbers in mind, it's kind of easy to see how tempting it might be for teachers of these, um, of these classes to, to quote unquote, teach for the test, um, yeah. as opposed to kind of teaching for, for, for the sake of learning. Um, and this is really one of the, one of, I think the pitfalls with standardized testing it's very easy to slip into into the lecture demonstration model that we were talking about, right? Where there's just yes. a list of facts that you need to memorize and then regurgitate the day that you take the exam. Um, this is a this is a delicate balance that teachers have to have to try and strike because we know from a lot of research that the lecture demonstration model is really not effective and and people's you know people don't tend to retain that information really well the whole curriculum it's not really focused on any sort of hands-on or interactive learning style and while that does work for some students for other students it definitely isn't going to work like we said earlier some students like to learn visually some students like to learn auditorially some kinesthetically etc so i feel like having a very standardized curriculum for these exams and these classes isn't necessarily a good thing but At the same time, AP is technically supposed to be the equivalent of a college course, and it's taught in high school. You know, it it could be a great thing. It allows students to advance to higher levels more quickly. But at the same time, because you mentioned that so many schools are in this program now, and that's putting so much pressure on the students to learn this, it's kind of worrying that a lot of students feel like they're forced to just go to this advanced stage of the AP program where the curriculum is so regimented, it might not fit their best style of learning. While Nick and I are both intimately familiar with the AP program, we thought it'd be a better idea to chat with someone who knows it even better than us, an AP science teacher. <laughs> so we sat down with Paralumen Stice Durkin, uh, a teacher of chemistry and AP environmental science from my alma mater, Punahou School in Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, so let's take a listen. This is my 29th year as a high school teacher. I teach AP environmental science. Um, I have taught physics and chemistry in various different levels. And the steadfast, the one thing that I taught almost every year is chemistry, general chemistry, um, college prep, um, basic stuff, but actually kind of sweet is, is really fun for me to, to do chemistry. So environmental science, AP environmental science was added on, I think about 10 years ago. And that's actually also been a little more current, slightly older students. So it, it, I kind of like to actually do both. Um, in sort of the AP family, you guys are probably familiar with most of those courses, which are very curriculum generated and kind of dictated by college board. 
So AP feels not, we try to make it personal. And the way that we can do that, we offer it for a full year, but it's actually, I don't know if you know, but it's a semester. But what that offers for us, though, is a little more leeway, right? Because we have kind of almost an extra semester to play around, to help kids find meaning, to add in um, co-videos. And it gives kids that are, that are um, kind of first-time AP or maybe dabbling in AP, gives them a chance to be successful. I like that. I like it for that. So we get we get a wide range, and I think that's also a nice learning opportunity for students. I was wondering what you thought of the whole idea that College Board gets to determine a national curriculum that's sort of very standardized. I I, I don't really like it actually. I like that. Uh, I like that teachers that are delivering their curriculum have a little more control. But you know, I think I think things are changing, boys. I think this is gonna this we're gonna see. Uh, we see so many, even this year, how many schools are not taking SAT scores. Um, I, I'm not sure if this is going to last. <laughs> yeah, on that topic, I wanted to ask about just what do you think about general testing processes? Like, do you prefer open notes? I don't think in the sort of, you know, definition type or multiple choice even um, questions are... Um, are very useful at all except for understanding memorization which is not to me not learning so um, so I definitely prefer just giving essay more essay questions more open note questions and allowing students to show what they know by applying is is really the only way I would say I don't really want the answer the answer itself like you, <laughs> you know chemistry and stoichiometry does not go well with multiple choice. So you, you, it's, it's not all about that. It's about it's about everything else you're showing me. Another component of that is the working through the um, the more content-based uh, multiple choice questions. If, if you really want to cheat, it's, it's, this is your heyday, right? One of the biggest um, controls of that is, is a time limit, as you said, right? Mm. Time limit so that the, the communication can't happen that quickly. If, if you're really super clueless, you won't you won't get through it. We can't waste we can't waste a good pandemic on and having no change, you know. So basically, don't waste this this chance to really examine what we do and look at it as an opportunity to say, oh, like the SATs, do we really need the SATs? Or if we survive this year and we say no SATs in our admissions process, maybe other schools will follow it. The main thing I would like educators and students to think about is, is how has the pandemic kind of heightened our, our values in education, what we, what we want out of education. Um, let's really use this to look at how we, how we see learning, right? how we see thinking and learning and, uh, and try to make some changes. And the best time to make changes is, is in a time like this, where everything, everything's a go, just go for it. Look how quickly we came up with, uh, with a, a vaccine. And then it's like, oh, so all this time, all those other things were really useful or really necessary. It makes, you know, so it makes, you kind of, that's another perfect example, right? It makes you question some of the things that we've, that we've always done, right? So education is no exception to all of the ways that we're questioning things that we've been doing in our lives. And um, it just gives us a, an interesting lens to look at um, some of our practices through, for sure. Well, thank you very much, uh, Paralumen, or Auntie P, as I call you. Um, it's been a blast to have you on the podcast, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Even 10 years ago, um, if the coronavirus 
pandemic had happened, if it was if it was COVID-09 instead of COVID-19. Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> I think it's probably safe to say that a lot of the learning process in this country and all over the world may have come to a complete standstill. There are students who are going to be suffering because of this, but uh, 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 it's still, I think, an incredible testament to how far technology and the internet has advanced in in the past decade that we're able to even um, continue the learning process virtually at all. All right, Nick, um, I think that is going to be the end of this episode, but make sure you tune in for the next episode where we would have Daniel and I talking about YouTube as a possible platform in the future for education. So we hope to see you all then.